0: You know, as a, as a baby is born it's, um, and comes into the world, it's really kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? and i was I was thinking this week, uh, you know from from birth to the first year of life, there's a lot that happens in the life of a child. They learn a lot in their first year of life, according to experts. Babies learn more in their first year of life than in any other year. Really incredible. Well, it's not universally true. It is generally true that by 12 months, children learn to stand or walk. They recognize and obey simple commands. They're able to help in in dressing themselves. They express their feelings, their likes, their dislikes, and they're able to do it in ways other than just simply crying. They're able to say a couple of recognizable words. There's really a remarkable amount of of, uh, progress and learning that occurs in the first year of a child's life. But it doesn't end there, does it? We are all lifetime learners. The very fact that, that, we are all, that we are alive means we are engaged in a process of continual learning. It never ends. never ends. And the Christian life is no exception to that rule. The very word disciple itself means fundamentally a learner. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a learner. And one of the things that disciples must learn is how to pray in such a way that God would be pleased with our prayers. You know, even grown people, grown men, need to learn how to pray. In Luke chapter 11, in verse 1, the the disciples themselves, they come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Teach us, Jesus, to pray. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. We are continuing to work our way through Matthew's Gospel and finding ourselves right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been at it for a number of months, and we will be at it for a number of months to come, particularly at the pace that I seem to be going, right? It's gotten down now to it's not even a verse per week. But anyway, that's okay. There's a lot here. So we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew chapter 6. And this section is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Although it probably would be better named the Disciples' Prayer. Because Jesus provided it to them in order to shape and to direct his disciples' thoughts and attitudes towards prayer. Jesus has given it to them to teach them how to pray. Now let's take a couple of minutes as we begin to look and and will over these next number of weeks at the Lord's Prayer, and let's set a little context, a little overview of the prayer itself before we go back and, and begin to dig into it. Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 through 15 provide a model prayer for Jesus' disciples. He has he has just previously instructed them on how to avoid certain kinds of prayer that, that are illustrative of those people who do not know God as their Father. Specifically in verses 5 and 6... He has rejected prayer that is designed to impress people. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Prayer designed to impress people. We call that performance prayer. So he rejects performance prayer in verses 5 and 6. Verses 7 and 8, he rejects prayer as... As a means to impress God. He says, verse 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles or the pagans do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So Jesus there rejects what we would call pagan prayer. So he rejects performance prayer. He rejects pagan prayer. But now, beginning in verse 9, he will, he will specifically instruct them on the kind of prayer that is pleasing to the Father. And so, if you like, we can call it pleasing prayer. This is a section of pleasing prayer. Notice verse 9, Jesus says, pray then in this way. Pray then in this way. And so he will begin to, to sort of lay it out for them and what he is giving them here is is not a a script to be followed not not some sort of template in which in which we must include all the various components every time we pray this is not a prayer to be memorized this is a model of prayer he is giving it as a model we know that in many ways, but not the least of which is over in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, where, where his disciples say, teach us to pray. Jesus atten- essentially teaches them a, a form of this prayer. It includes a number of these kinds of ideas, but it's not verbatim. So it's not a, te- it's not a template. It's not a script. It's really a model that, that demonstrates the attitudes and the concerns that are pleasing to God the Father and reflect our status as his children. So as His children, as the children of God, how do we pray in a way that is pleasing in the sight of the Father? So Jesus instructs, and He begins, and He says, pray then in this way. The verb prayer is is given in in the present tense. It's a a present middle imperative, and and it just basically means that, that we are to pray in this way on a regular basis. This is to be the regular kind of prayer that is being offered. It's to accompany our regular communion with God. It's not something that you just pray once and put aside. That is that these ideas brought out in this prayer are to be a regular part of our prayer life. It's a model prayer. And this model prayer, verses 9 through 15, is comprised of six specific petitions, six specific petitions, and they're they're broken down into two groupings. So there are three in the first grouping, three in the second. The first grouping, verses 9 and 10, concerns the desire of the disciple to see God's glory displayed throughout the earth. You see it at the end of verse 10 where he says, on earth as it is in heaven. That little expression actually applies to the three petitions. It sort of rounds them out. It's a desire to see the glory of God on display throughout the earth, throughout the earth, just like it is presently in heaven. Now, specifically, the the three requests that make up the first grouping are requests that concern, first, God's name in verse 9, hallowed be your name. God's kingdom, verse 10, your kingdom come. And finally, God's will, the end of verse 10, your will be done. So it concerns God's name, it concerns God's kingdom, it concerns God's will. And the prayer is looking for God to do something. It is looking for God to do something. It is looking for God to, to take action not for the worshiper himself or herself to to bring in the kingdom, but for God himself to bring in his great kingdom. So it it is a petition to God to accomplish his great plan and purposes here on earth as they are presently being accomplished in heaven. The second grouping, which begins in verse 11 and runs through verse 15, And you'll notice in your New American Standard translation, uh, the end of verse 13, and it has probably, it's in brackets, it says, for yours is the kingdom and power of God uh, and glory forever. Amen, it's in brackets. When we get to that, we'll deal with that section. It's probably not part of the original prayer, but we'll deal with that when we get there. But basically, verses 11 through 15 include three petitions in the second grouping. And the second grouping is about the disciples' need for God's grace to guard them until Messiah's kingdom comes. So the first grouping is about God's, God's kingdom, God's plan, God's name being displayed throughout the earth. The second petition deals with, or the second, uh, the, excuse me, the fourth, fifth, and sixth petition, second grouping, deal with the need for God to guard us. It's a request for God to guard us by grace, until that kingdom arrives. So in particular, it it concerns physical provision, right? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So it concerns physical provision. It concerns the need for forgiveness. Verse 12, forgive us our debts. And finally, it concerns the need for deliverance from temptation. Now, It's probably worth noting here that Jesus does not include in this model prayer all possible aspects of prayer. This is not the treatise on prayer. This is not everything you need to know and learn about prayer in this one little prayer. There are many other aspects to biblical prayer. This does not exhaust it. But what this model does provide for us is a a very focused prayer in light of God's Coming kingdom. So, in light of that great theological truth of the coming kingdom of God, how should we pray? How should we pray? And so, by implication and by direct statement, it addresses our relationship and role concerning this amazing event. Now, the whole prayer itself is phrased in the plural. Notice the plural pronouns Our Father. Give us this day. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. So the the plural pronouns are are all through this particular prayer. And so that indicates to us that this is primarily a model for community prayer. This is not, first and foremost, a, a model for private prayer. This is a model for community prayer. And that, by the way, is how the church has traditionally seen it and used it as part of their public worship services. So rather than an individual act of devotion, it is an expression of the corporate devotion, the corporate prayer life of the body of believers. Now, it's still helpful, it's still useful, and it's still appropriate to pray privately, to pray in secret, as Jesus says, verse 6 of chapter 6, along these kinds of lines to be sure. But what he's indicating to us is that in the corporate prayer meetings of the church, in that corporate sense, that we should have these kinds of themes regularly inhabiting the corporate prayers of God's people. Fair enough? Okay, so with that as a background, let us focus in on the first petition. So we're going to examine the first petition, and and I want to do so so that we might pray and prioritize our lives in accordance with its divine perspective. So that we pray and prioritize our lives in accordance with its divine perspective. So let's take a look at it. Beginning in verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. It begins with an expression of our relationship of trust. It begins with an expression of our corporate relationship of trust, which flows from knowing God intimately, right? Our Father, that's an expression of of an intimate relationship. While at the same time, it acknowledges God as the sovereign creator and lawgiver. Our Father, the intimate expression, who is in heaven. That is, that you are the great one. You are the sovereign one. You are the creator. You are the law giver. And so we have this relationship with the creator of the universe. An intimate relationship in which we can, in the, Jesus says in other places, say Abba or Daddy, Father. An amazing thought. An amazing thought. You know, only those who have been redeemed by the grace of God have this kind of relationship with the creator. The early church recognized this reality, and in fact, they, they would forbid non Christians from reciting this prayer. They would forbid them from reciting this prayer. In fact, they would forbid them just as vigorously as they would forbid them from partaking of communion or the Lord's Supper. If a, if a non Christian, if an unbeliever in the first in the early church in its first centuries were to were to somehow wander into the public worship gathering of the people of God they, and, and they recited this prayer in a public sense and they were partaking of communion together and the things that, that Christians do they would forbid the unbeliever from mouthing the words from expressing this prayer and from partaking of the Lord's table because they are expressions that are really only appropriate to those who know God by grace, through faith our Father Who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. First request. Hallowed be your name. Now, in antiquity, the the idea of a name meant a lot more than it does today in our culture. For us today, a name is, is just simply a personal designation, right? It's designed to identify a particular individual. Bob. So that's his name. In our our day, it seems like people go out of their way to be creative, to sort of come up with these personal designations. But that's about all we make of a name. It's just a way to identify someone. But in a biblical time and in a biblical mindset, that's not true. The name of the person was was bound up with the, the qualities that were associated with that person and that name. So the name actually can sort of stand in for the person. In fact, often we, we close our prayer and we say, in Jesus' what? Name. And when we say that in Jesus' name, what we're, what we're saying is by name is that we're referring to the person of Jesus himself. That it would, that would he, it is on the, on the basis of his atoning sacrifice that we come before God in the name of Jesus You can see this, by the way, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel announces the birth, the coming birth of the Messiah himself. And the angel says, you to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus for that is because he will save his people from their sins the reason you will call him jesus which is comes from joshua which means god saves is because he will save his people from their sins so his name and his character and his function and so forth are all wrapped together they're all wrapped together so god's name is a reflection of who god is God's name is a reflection of who he is. His name and his nature are essentially the same. So hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your person. Hallowed be your character. Problem is we don't know what the word hallowed means. Right? I mean, when's the last time you included that in everyday speech? So we need to take a moment and unpack it. Hallowed is a verbal form of the word holy. It is a verbal form of the word holy. Holy be your name. Holy be your name. Now the word holy, in its most fundamental and base level, means to be separate. To be holy is to be separate. And that idea predominates biblically in the word holy the idea to be separate. In fact, the word holy itself comes from an ancient word which means to cut or to separate. To cut or to separate. We we sometimes use an expression in our own day like that. We'll say when, when something excels all other things, we'll call it a cut above, right? It's a cut above. What it means is that it excels and it exceeds all other things. It is holy. It is a cut above. Now, the words sanctify and the word saints both come from this basic word, holy, or to be separate. Now, God is separate. God is holy, same thing, because he is above and beyond his creation. He is outside of his creation. He is the creator, we are the created. He is the creator, we are the creation. He is also the sustainer of his creation. He called the universe into existence by a power of his word, and he sustains it moment by moment. If you like, he told in Colossians that Christ himself is the cosmic glue that holds the universe together. So he is outside of his creation. He is its creator. He is its sustainer. And as such, he he, he maintains absolute control, absolute power, absolute authority over his creation. The Bible uses all kinds of illustrations for that. It speaks of the potter and the clay, right? The potter is outside of the clay and, and makes from the clay whatever the potter chooses, So God is holy, God is separate, God is above, God is beyond his creation. And by the way, that includes you and that includes me. For we are part of the creation. We are his highest created order, but we nonetheless remain created beings, right? We don't bring ourselves into the world and we don't take ourselves back out, All right, it is God alone who grants life. It is God who withdraws life. And it is God who numbers our days. He is holy. There is an infinite distance between God and us. An infinite distance between God and us. He is other. He is other. He is unworldly beyond this created order now the theological term for this is transcendence transcendence God is transcendent the theologians say and that's that's a nice word put it into your vocabulary that one you could use and what it what it refers to is the fact that God is above and God is beyond all that you can see he's above it he is beyond it God is transcendent now, holiness it technically is not an attribute of God, okay? Holiness is not one attribute or character of God, the characteristic of God, rather. It is actually a description of who he is, fundamentally. We speak of the attributes of God, things like, you know, God is merciful, God is, is um, wise, God is loving. Those are, those are attributes of God, but holiness is not an attribute. Holiness is a description of his character, who he really is, and the core of his being. When the angels surrounded, surround the throne of God and they call out to one another, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You don't find in the Bible the angels calling out, you know, merciful, merciful, merciful is God, or or love, love, love is God. It's always holy, holy, holy is God. And by that threefold repetition, they are are bringing forward the, the importance of this concept. God is holy. God is transcendent. God is not like us. God is not like us. Day and night, the Bible tells us, the angels do not cease to to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He alone possesses immortality. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. So when the angels call out, Holy, 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 they are proclaiming this reality. Proclaiming the reality that, that God is not like anything or anyone. He is unlike anything or anyone. And because only God is holy, only God can confer holiness upon an object or a person. God alone can do this, and he does it in order to set them apart for his service. For example, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, When Moses comes to stand before the burning bush, you remember? Then he, that is God, said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, it's just a piece of, of you know, a, a desert mountain. There was nothing that was special about that piece of real estate until God set it apart, and said, it is now holy. I am setting it apart. And so Moses, remove your sandals when you come into the presence of the holy. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, God sets apart a group of people. A group that he, that he has rescued from bondage in slavery to Egypt. And he, and he brings them out and he brings them to himself at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he says to them in Exodus chapter nineteen and verse six, "You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a look at it holy nation, a holy nation, a nation that has been set apart. you have been set apart for I by God to be a kingdom of priests, that is you are to mediate." Me to the rest of the world. A kingdom of priests. Now, when I use the word holiness, probably what comes to most people's minds is the idea of moral purity. Right? We speak of holiness and and you think about moral purity or uprightness. And and that's good. You should think about such things, but it but it's really only a secondary sense of the word holiness. But it is there. So moral purity or uprightness is a, is a secondary sense of, of the word holiness. And, and it really springs from the idea that God is separate from evil. That God is, is separate from evil. He is above it. He is beyond it. There is no evil in him, James says. And so we emulate his holiness in moral purity when we separate from evil. The Apostle Paul expresses this dimension of holiness when he writes to the Corinthian church that they must separate themselves from all religious alliances with unbelievers and their immoral lifestyles. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, speaking to the Corinthian believers, he says, therefore, come out from them and be separate says the Lord, touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. So there is a moral purity aspect to holiness, but it's not its primary meaning. Its primary meaning is the otherness of God. Now, that's where it starts to get interesting. Because God is transcendent, Because God is other, because God is outside of his creation, because God is above his creation, he is not accountable to his creation. God is not accountable to us. We are accountable to him. The relationship only goes in one direction. Okay, God is not accountable to you. You are accountable to God. That means that human reason is accountable to God, not God accountable to human reason. It means that ethical standards are ethical standards. God is not accountable to your ethical standards or my ethical standards. I am accountable, you are accountable to God's ethical standards. The ethical standards, the, the reasoning of human, human beings has been irreparably flawed and damaged by sin. So we don't call God into the dock, as it were, as the English would like to say, in order to cross-examine Him. He calls us before His throne of justice, and He examines us. He examines us. Now what this means is is that all that God does is good, is just, and is righteous. All that God does is good, all that God does is just, And all that God does is righteous. Why? Because it flows from his holy character. It flows from his holy character. Even when God does things that we do not understand. Even when God does things for for reasons and purposes that he declines to reveal to us. And that's often the case. We don't call God up on the phone and say, why did you do what you do? He's not accountable to me. He's not accountable to you. You don't question him. God questions you. You remember Job found that out, right? All through the book of Job, you know, as the as the pressure continues to increase on that on that poor man. And he begins to to say, if I could only have my day in court before God, right? And I would I would ask him, God, why are you doing what you do? And then finally God appears to Job at the end of the book, right? And he says, Job, where were you? And he starts to lay out the acts of creation, right? And how does Job respond to him? You remember? He says, I put my hand over my mouth. I put my hand over my mouth in the presence of God. I have nothing to say. I am undone. I am undone. By the way, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to the end of the chapter, includes a great doxology. And Romans chapters 1 through 11, as I'm sure you'll remember, is the most complete and comprehensive explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it includes all kinds of conundrums that are spelled out for us there, including the origin of sin and Adam's fall and how in Adam we become sinners and and desperately in need of a Savior and, and how God in His in great and eternal plan, determined that his own son would come and die in the place of sinners and that his righteousness would then become our righteousness by faith. And, and then, then the, the loss of the nation of Israel, her eviction from the, from the promised land and her eventual return someday. All that's all included there. But notice how Paul finishes it out. He's been laboring away for 11 chapters on, on some, some really heavy-duty theology and Paul finishes like this. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Oh, who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. That is, a, that is a proper believing response to the holiness of God. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You know, the greatest demonstration of the holiness of God is the cross of jesus christ it is there on the cross where god most significantly and most clearly displays his holiness but it is on the cross that god punished his own son as a substitute for us it is on the cross that that he satisfied his righteous wrath against us sinners It is on the cross of of Christ and, and his subsequent death and burial and resurrection that God vindicates his righteousness. That says, yes, I accepted the payment of my son on behalf of his people. And that I raised him from the dead, that he might have life evermore. And that all who might call upon him in faith might share the very life of God. He made him Lord of all. And that all who would receive him by faith receive his perfect righteousness. Credited to their account. They are welcomed into the family of God. God now has become appeased towards them. His wrath no longer resides over them. They now have a relationship with him. A relationship of love. An intimate relationship with their creator. It just circles us right back around to verse 9. Our Father, who is in heaven. It is in Christ that we can make that kind of statement. It is His intimacy, our Father. It is His transcendence who art in heaven. So what is it exactly that Jesus is instructing His people to publicly pray for? Hallowed be Your name. Holy be Your name. What is it that we are asking God to do? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because the rest of the sermon is about answering it. So it's simply this. The first petition of the six in this Lord's Prayer is is simply this. And that is that that God would be seen as holy throughout the earth. That he would be seen for who he really is. That he would be treated as he really is. Holy, separate, other. On earth. As he presently is in heaven. It's a request that the earth would would be filled with the knowledge of God. That the earth would be filled with the honor of God. That the earth would be filled with the reverence that is due him as creator, sustainer, and lawgiver. and Redeemer. In fact, it's a desire for the worldwide worship of God. That's what this prayer request is. It's a request that the world would begin to worship God for who he really is. And that, my friends, is the true impetus of missions. It is what drives the missionary movement. It is why one goes to the furthest and remote remote parts of the earth. It is so the world will worship God for who He really is, that they will see Him as holy as He really is. This is not a new concept. This is an old and ancient idea. The psalmist writes in Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4, Let the peoples praise you. When you see peoples, that is not a reference to the nation of Israel. That is a reference to the Gentiles. That is a reference to all those who are not Jews. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. let the world world worship God. Let the world see God for who he really is. Let the world honor God for who he really is. Let the world reverence God for who he really is. By the way, the same idea appears at the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. We call it the great commission, right? It's how Matthew closes out this gospel. And he says, go, therefore, the words of Jesus, go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, that is of all the peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, worldwide gospel preaching has made some amazing progress in the last 2,000 years, right? A little frightened band of 11 followers hiding in an upper room on the night of the crucifixion, right? When the Spirit of God comes at Pentecost, they are empowered and emboldened, and they go out, and they begin to turn the Roman Empire upside down. And and within the, the close of the first century, the, the Christian church now basically can be found entirely encircling the Mediterranean. And it just continues to make its expansion. And it goes west, and it goes up into France, what was called Gaul in those days. And then finally it crosses the channel, and it goes to Great Britain. And and then it leaps, and it comes to the New World, and on it goes, and the gospel continues to spread and spread. But there's still a lot of work to be done. There is still a lot of work to be done. The vast majority of the world, both domestically and internationally, they still remain either uninformed or uninterested in the worship of God. Their hearts are closed or their minds are are darkened. They do not know the one true God and they do not worship Him as He ought to be worshipped. And so the, the, the purpose of the church remains And by the way, it is not until Messiah's kingdom is finally established, it is then and only then that God will be universally worshiped as he has rightfully due. Let me show you this. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter twenty nine. Isaiah twenty nine. I'm gonna look at a couple of passages really quickly with you from the prophets. Isaiah twenty nine, beginning in verse seventeen. Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 17. This prophecy is 750 years before the birth of Christ. The prophet writes, verse 17, Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? On that day, and I've told you this before, when you see that in the prophets, that expression, on that day, it's referring ahead prophetically to the time of the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. So the prophet is looking forward in time. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. There is a day coming in which the effect of sin, which has us in a death grip on this planet, will be broken. The deaf will hear and the blind will see and the poor and the afflicted will no longer be oppressed. He goes on and he says, "For verse 20, The ruthless will come to an end and the scorner will be finished. That is, evil men, evil people will be finally put down they will no longer rule in their injustice indeed all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off he says who cause a person to be indicted by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gates and defraud the one in in the right with meaningless arguments meaning that the legal system will no longer be perverted in which the rights of the poor and the minorities are not the same as those who have wealth and privilege the day is coming when real righteousness will prevail. Verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Israel and will stand in awe of the God of Israel Notice that word sanctify. I told you that's a derivative of the, of the root word what? Holy. Holy. So the prophet is, is connecting here that basically to sanctify God's name means to stand in awe of the God of Israel. To treat God's name as holy is to stand in awe of the God of Israel. The day is coming. The day is coming when Jesus Christ will no longer be a curse word but only a word of praise on the lips of mankind. Listen to the other prophet, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Ezekiel writes after Isaiah. Yet he refers to the same great event. Different language, a little bit different concepts, but the same great event. Ezekiel 36 and beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Now, a bit of context here, right? Ezekiel is writing to the nation that has been taken into captivity by the Babylonians in the 6th century because of their, their abominable idol worship. That they have turned back from the God of Israel who has redeemed them. And he has swept them away in the captivity. He says, you have dishonored me among the nations. You have profaned me among the Gentiles. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Well, when will this happen? For I will, verse 24, take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people. And I will be your God. Not yet, friends. Not yet. 1948 and following, there's been an amazing gathering of the Jews from the Great Dispersion. But they do not yet follow their God. They are an atheistic, secular nation. But the day is coming. The day is coming when God will cleanse his people and they will turn back to the God who redeemed them. And that great event will be tied to the return of Messiah, the establishment of His kingdom. And it will be at that time that God's name will be treated as holy from one end of this world to another. I started out this morning by saying I wanted to look at this first petition with you so that we might pray and prioritize our own lives according to its divine perspective. Listen, until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, we as his children are being instructed to engage in the regular public and private prayer for the advancement of the gospel through the work of evangelism and church planting. Let me say it again. Until Christ returns and with him the establishment of the kingdom of God, we as his children have been instructed to do something. We have been instructed to engage in a regular practice of prayer, publicly and privately, praying for the advancement of the gospel, right? Holy be your name. Let your name be seen as holy. And that is done through the work of evangelism, through the work of church planting. What is the church about? What are we here for? Listen, if we were here only to enjoy the fellowship of one another and the presence of our Savior, we could do that a lot better in heaven. I can just guarantee it, you're going to like me a lot better in heaven than you like me now. Okay? That's why when someone gets mad at me, I don't really worry about it too much because I know it's not going to last that long. (laughs) Right? I'm 55. It's not going to last that long. In heaven, the fellowship will be pure, uninterrupted by sin. See, we have a purpose here. He saves us, and He he gives us a purpose. And the purpose is the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. It is that the world would see and know God is holy. It is the planting of Bible-teaching churches, both domestically and internationally. That's why we're here. But listen, it doesn't end just with praying. If we're to pray like this, then we've got to live like this. It would be purely hypocritical to, to pray for the, for the worldwide propagation of the gospel and to live as if it doesn't matter. We need to align our, our priorities with our prayers. We need to prioritize our time. We need to prioritize our money. We need to prioritize our relationships for the advancement of the gospel, for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For some, that means leaving. Leaving. That means turning their back on all that they know and love. All that is familiar to them. All that is comfortable for them. Venturing out into the unknown. It's not for all, but it, but it is for some. For others, it, it means remaining behind and, and holding the rope, as it were. Belaying them, if you like, through prayer, the contribution of, of personal finances. All the while engaging themselves personally within their own sphere of relationships. Everyone who is a follower of Christ has the part to play. Everyone. The great apostle John, the last living apostle, near the end of his life, near the close of the first century, he wrote a letter, small letter, to a friend by the name of Gaius, we have it in our new testament it's called third john in that letter he instructs his friend gaius regarding his responsibilities to participate in the missionary endeavor listen to what the apostle john writes to gaius third john verses 5 through 8 beloved you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Do you get that? Some go out for the sake of the name. They turn their back on all, all that is comfortable, all that is familiar. We ought to support such ones as these. Tonight, tonight, promise will speak about the call of God upon her life. She is a choice servant of the Lord. This young lady has been focused and devoted in a preparation for the task that God has called her to do for more than a decade. She has kept her eye on the ball. Now she has finished her preparation, or virtually so. And it's time for her to go. She's going to Papua New Guinea, to a tribal setting, Likely to look very similar to what you saw in that video. She's leaving behind family and friends. All that she knows and all that she loves. For the sake of the name. For the sake of the name. That the gospel, that the holiness of God might be proclaimed to a group of people who have never heard. Beloved, we ought to support such a one as this, and the Spirit of God impress His Word upon your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, it seems quite appropriate as we close our time here publicly to pray and ask that your name would be treated as holy, that the honor and reverence that are due you as Creator God, Sustainer God, Redeemer God, might be known throughout this earth. Father, that you have given to each and every one of us who know you intimately and can call you Abba, Father, a part to play. You have redeemed us for a purpose. You have have left us here on this earth for however long, for a purpose. We confess, our Father, that all so often we get caught up in the day-to-day things. We lose sight of this great reality. We forget. We find our own comfort to all too often dominate our prayers. God, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our short-sightedness. Forgive us for our lack of passion. Forgive us for our blindness. And, oh God, may you use us for the worldwide proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as the Apostle Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men but Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.